Welcome to Living Proof, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. We're glad you could join us today. The series Living Proof examines social work research and practice that makes a difference in people's lives. I'm your host, Ajwa Robinson, and I'd like to take a moment to address you, our regular listeners. We know you have enjoyed our podcasts, as evidenced by the more than 200,000 downloads to date. Thanks to you all. We'd like to know what value you may have found in the podcast. We'd like to hear from all of you, practitioners, researchers, students, but especially our listeners who are social work educators. How are you using the podcast in your classrooms? Just go to our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu forward slash podcast and click on the Contact Us tab. Again, thanks for listening and we look forward to hearing from you. This podcast airs at a time when President Barack Obama has proposed raising the mandatory school age to 18 in hopes of reducing the dropout rate and its associated negative consequences. Yet under zero tolerance policies, thousands of elementary, middle, and high school students have become virtual dropouts due to multiple and extended suspensions. What is more, such suspensions have high emotional and relational costs for grandparents providing kinship care, in addition to the educational costs experienced by the child. Priscilla Gibson is an associate professor in the School of Social Work at the University of Minnesota. Dr. Gibson is a licensed independent clinical social worker with over 25 years of direct social work practice experience. Dr. Gibson's research interests include African-American grandmothers and other older caregivers in kinship care arrangements. In our telephone interview, Dr. Gibson spoke with me about her current qualitative research exploring the experiences of kinship caregivers parenting African-American children who are disproportionately suspended under school zero-tolerance policies. My guest today is Dr. Priscilla Gibson. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Gibson. Oh, thank you for having me. So, Dr. Gibson, one of your interests is in African-American grandmothers as kinship care providers. What do we know about African-American grandmothers as kinship providers? Well, the literature is really rich. We know that disproportionately African-American grandmothers accept this role as kinship care provider despite uh, low income and limited resources. We also know that they're invested in their grandchildren and do not want the grandchildren to be placed in foster care with strangers. We know that they also want their grandchildren to avoid the social problem that is being experienced by their parents. And unfortunately, overwhelmingly, that's drug abuse. And while some parents, things happen to parents for no fault of their own, there are the majority of the situations is because of neglect from drug abuse. 
And then grandparents experience intense emotional feelings about their adult children having social problems and continue to to support them as much as they can. And we know that the caregivers, grandparents, were self-supporting, were not using governmental assistance at all prior to assuming the role as caregivers. However, after assuming the role, they found that they needed governmental help, financial support, and other kinds of social support. Legal concerns are huge for this population, and they really struggle with whether to get legal custody of the children or to wait until the adult parents get their act together and return to effective parenting. Actually, that is their hope. It doesn't always happen. Do we know anything about the sort of the percentages of African-American grandparent caregivers? Like uh, what percentage or the numbers? There are two pieces to that. Number one, there are two kinds of kinship care. There is the formal kinship care where people are in the child welfare system, and so data on that population is easily obtainable. Then there are informal situations where grandparents assume the role and need to decide whether they will indeed report that to people like census takers. And that is a concern for researchers because we don't especially know how many people are in informal kinship care. We assume that there are more in informal than informal, but those situations are very hard to get numbers for it, these situations occur, and then children return to their homes. So, so they're, they're really dynamic. They're not stable. Why might kinship provider not report that they're doing this provision, or why not take it over mm-hmm. formally? There are a variety of reasons from the myth in the community that if people in the child protection system find out about the informal caregiving situation, that they will come and take the child into care. Two, not wanting to be public about the problems of their adult children. Two, wanting to protect their grandchildren from any stigma or harsh scrutiny by the public, by the community. I see. You mentioned one of the sort of impacts of kinship caregiving, and that was the need for additional financial assistance. Are there other impacts on the grandparent as a result of kinship caregiving? Yes, and one of the huge impacts is a change in lifestyle. And so grandparents who become primary caregivers, and that's the situation that I explore. So I look at situations where the grandparent is totally in charge of this grandchild and the biological parents are not in the household. Thus, the change in their lifestyle. So they then need to do more activities around being a parent being a caregiver, and at their stage in life, they have less peers who are doing that and need to find people who are caregiving. They need support, 
and they find out that indeed they don't have as much information or knowledge about their grandchild as they thought they had. And thus, around the country, there are these support groups, grandparents as parents, that are sometimes funded by different organizations to not only provide information to grandparents about resources, provide them with support to maintain the caregiving relationship, but also for them to talk about and meet with other grandparents who are in similar situations. Now, you're currently conducting some research examining caregiver experiences of school suspensions. How did interest in this topic come about? I was working on an evaluation project with another entity at the University of Minnesota. It's called CARI, which stands for the Center for Applied Research for Educational Improvement. And CARI had been hired by a school district to evaluate the views of students, parents, and administrators on new programs. Uh, that were just instituted. And during that time, I participated in many meetings in which the suspension rates were discussed. And parent involvement was also discussed, and I became really interested in parents and caregivers' views about suspensions, and particularly how they could mitigate the suspensions of their children. And so I wrote a proposal, and it was funded. Are suspensions a big problem in the African-American community in Minnesota? It is such a problem that one entity, I think it's called the Department of Crime and Justice, calls uh, suspension of African-American males an epidemic proportion. And it is seen as a pipeline from school to jail. It is seen as not educating a whole generation of African-American males. It causes distance between the child and the school, and so that child sometimes don't return or goes back with an attitude that then ends up with that child, results in that child dropping out of school. So it is a huge problem. That sounds similar to what's going on in Buffalo. Recently, there have been several meetings with the school board related to suspensions in Buffalo. Um, The latest iteration came about because a student was suspended, and while they were at the bus stop leaving school, they were shot and killed. And the story, around the story, the, the public was informed that there's a disproportional amount of suspensions uh, for children as young as five, for things yeah. as trivial as talking back to a teacher or mm-hmm. loitering in the hallway. Yes, it's like seemingly school districts nationwide are using a zero tolerance. And zero tolerance basically emerge from concerns about weapons. And then it just morphed into everything. So it's like any time there's a fight, there's a conflict with the teacher, the teacher said this child is unruly and disrupting my class, other kinds of behaviors that don't have to do with safety, that child is suspended. And parents are very concerned about that. So tell me about your project. 
Oh, sure. So I'm using qualitative methods to explore the experiences of caregivers, and I'm defining caregivers as biological parents and relatives who are caring for their child and their experiences with suspensions. Uh, we've been recruiting African-American grandparents and parents by posting announcements, mailing and emailing recruitment letters on uh, the eligibility criteria to be included in the study are um, having at least one child who has been suspended this year or last school year and living in the metro area. Now, for caregivers, they need to be primary caregivers. So, again, a situation where the biological parent is not in the household. They contact us. We screen them for eligibility, tell them about the research procedures, and schedule an interview. We usually do interviews in their homes, and the interviews are tape-recorded and transcribed, and they are given a $20 gift certificate. We know that that does not take care of their time, but it's a small token of our appreciation for um, telling us their stories. Esther, what's the been response been like to your recruitment efforts? It has varied. Oftentimes, I get lots of calls, especially after the suspension has occurred. And by the time we, there's a research staff here, so research assistants and myself, by the time we get back, and usually it's, it's within a week or sometimes actually several hours later or by the next day, parents have calmed down and they may or may not decide to be interviewed. We've interviewed 23 African-American parents, we have talked to a group of parents about their interest in having us to come out and do a focus group. Meetings of a group have evolved around the suspensions, but they are having a problem with people participating. And so we don't have a date to go in and do focus groups. I found that when I've worked with an agency and have been on site, that acts more as a way of, let me say it this way, people who, grandparents and parents who are there uh, on premises when we're there makes it more possible for us to collect data when we can find a private place. Just recently, the Minnesota Kinship Caregivers Association did a mailing for us, and we got even more caregivers. Well, that sounds great. Do you, just a sort of a, a side question. So when you're there and they're there, what do you think about that particular set of variables, both being in the same place at the same time, make the participants or potential participants more willing to to participate? You know, I think a couple of things. Uh, first, we really need to be clear as researchers that we do not want to push people or pressure people or coerce people into our study. The other thing is that we're learning that lots of, especially I think people in the African-American community, are suspicious of the researchers and of the research process. So part of it is an education. The other thing that we do that we agree to do with our IRB is to read. So everybody hears the same thing. We have an announcement letter that we read, someone else reads for us, and then we leave. 
and we are in a totally different room, different part of the building, and if people decide to come to us, then they can come to us. But we do not approach people individually and usually read to a group, send announcement letters out and post uh, our letters. And when I say send announcement letters out, that we don't approach people, we don't approach them face-to-face and say, we're doing this study, and let me tell you about it, and if you're, are you interested? We don't do that. So I think the more that caregivers learn about us, the more that people are less suspicious about us, the more that although kinship caregiving has been a staple in the African-American community and actually other communities, there's still a level of stigma. And when that level of stigma is talked about, is less prominent, I think that we will get more people participating in our studies. And one of the things that we have been slowly doing is going to churches and just talking about kinship care. And actually, in next month, we are doing a panel discussion in the community that will be recorded. That a group of us are talking about issues with kinship care in the African American communities. There are about there's a panel of about five of us: an attorney, a school nurse who also does facilitates a support group for kinship caregivers in the African American community a kinship caregiver who was uh, instrumental in starting a group, another kinship caregiver who is known uh, for her work in policy and for her work with the Kinship Navigator uh, program that provided grants, and a service provider who is with Minnesota Kinship Caregivers Association. And I will also be a part of that talking about the research so we're really pleased about it. And also like in the fall, in September, doing, uh, there was September is Grandparent Month. And in September, I was invited along with two other caregivers to talk to a group of African-American women. I, I think they're called the Red Hats on a Saturday afternoon around issues with caregiving. And it worked really well. We had between 60 and 70 people there. So in your 23 interviews, what are some of the themes that are beginning to emerge? Yeah, there are four basic themes at this point. And let me just kind of talk about them. So one is the emotional cost. Caregivers, and we uh, interviewed only women at this point, had intense initial reactions to the suspensions. First, they were shocked that the suspensions occurred. They were afraid that the suspension would damage uh, learning and the learning environment and their children wanting to learn. They were angry that the suspension occurred and it influenced their work and their income. Some women told us that they were upset that they were being called at work for what they thought of as petty things. But they were also worried about their child, and they were concerned that their child was being disrespectful to adults when there was a situation or a disagreement or conflict between the child and the teacher or the child and another authority figure at school. And then there were cognitive reactions, and so they were thinking, I have to do something to avoid future suspensions. And they demanded facts and called the school and wanted to know what happened with this. Why was my child suspended? 
they talk to their children and question the rationale for their child's behavior. Why are you acting this way? What caused you to do this? And they wanted to contact the parents of other children, and the school system would not give them a contact information about the other child or the parents so that they could do that. And then they were reflective, so they did lots of thinking about this and wondered about the values that they were teaching their children in their homes, wondered about this whole thing about teaching, especially boys, to defend themselves when adult parents or adults were not present. And they realized that they liked information about suspension and policies on suspensions. And they didn't understand the whole thing about zero tolerance in the school system. The second theme was an added element in the relationship with all of the children in their household. So with the child who was suspended, they questioned the truthfulness of the child's story and really talked to that child about, okay, are you saying you didn't do anything? You must have done something. What did you do? They pushed talking to that child about developing a plan to avoid future suspensions. They were concerned that that child was modeling undesirable behavior to other siblings, to other children in the household. So it's like this child was suspended, but I don't want you to follow what he's doing. They were concerned that suspensions were a system of other problems, and how would they find out those other problems? They were wondering about the role of race and the teacher's ability to deal with especially African-American boys. And they realized that they had rules in their house that inadvertently resulted in suspension, and parents talked about a child who was in detention, and detention was after school. But that parent rule in the household was, you get on the school bus because I don't have transportation to go and get you from school. So when the school bus comes, you need to be on it. Well, that the teacher or someone in the office told that child that he needed to stay after school because he had gotten a detention. And he said, well, my mom said i got to get on the bus. And uh, according to their story, Nobody would call the mom to explain the situation, so that child was suspended. And then with the child who was not suspended, that parent really talked to the child about, okay, your brother was suspended, don't you do this, this, and this. And then talked to the child about the family, everybody, providing support to the suspended child. Okay, this happened. Let's work together so that this does not happen again and that you go back to school and you realize that school is important. The third theme was mother's reaction and interaction and advice to the school. So they felt like the schools should distinguish between major and minor infractions, that they shouldn't use the practice of zero tolerance, that unless it was a safety issue, that children shouldn't be suspended, and that they need to really rethink the whole idea of suspension and allow punishment in the home or use in-school suspensions, which some schools do for some infractions. And they really, schools really need to explore why so many African-American boys were suspended. And then they talked to the teachers and principals 
or they explain sometimes in some instances the unfairness of the suspension for their child. And then they discuss how the household rules might conflict with the school rules in terms of suspensions. And they wanted the school to know that. And then the last one was the mother's strong opinions about recommendations to the school and to other parents. And to the school, they said, do not reward students who've been suspended. So sometimes after suspension, that child's class was going to have a field trip, and that child was allowed to go on the field trip. And they felt that that was a reward, and that child, that should not happen. They felt that the school should help them form form a support group for parents of children who were suspended so that they could talk about and develop strategies to avoid suspensions. They felt that churches had a role and should have activities and talk about suspension since it, it is so prominent in the African-American community. They thought that the school should hire African-American males to mentor boys and that there needed to be an African-American male presence in the school. And then again, suspension as a symptom of problems with the child with the parent, with the school, and with the teachers. And I really thought that they were looking at everything, including themselves and their parenting. And then they had recommendations to other parents, and they said, be proactive with the school. Get the facts. Become involved. Be involved with the school regularly, including visiting classes. Communicate with the teachers regularly. Don't wait until your child gets into trouble and know that your child is not always truthful or respons- and responsible, and that provide children with opportunity to continue to learn outside the school system when a suspension occurs because learning is so important. And discuss your concerns about the school and the teachers outside of the child's presence. So don't let the child know all of your concerns about the teacher and the school, and certainly don't talk negatively about the teacher or the school in front of your child. Well, that sounds like a lot of important information that you got out of the conversations you've had with caregivers so far. How many more caregivers are you planning to speak with, and what do you hope will happen next? Now that you're starting to see some of these themes, what are you going to do with the information? We are continuing to recruit and hope to get between 10 and 20 more informants. That is ongoing. And we continue to do member checks and ask caregivers about these themes that have then emerged from the data. Another faculty member with me, we're collaborating to develop an intervention for the parent and the child and maybe including the teachers, but we're not clear about that. And what we are thinking about doing is working with one school and being involved in either a pre-conference or post-conference with the child and the parent and talking about what each of them can do to avoid future suspensions. And then going back at one month, two months, and three months to uh, see if indeed any of those interventions or what they thought of as intervention worked, why they worked and why they didn't work. I'm also going to present this information to parents, to school systems, to caregivers. I'm writing it up for publication, and I'm presenting it to at professional conferences.
And so for practitioners who may be listening, what do you think is the takeaway message for that? So they're working with kinship caregivers or potential kinship caregivers. What do you want their takeaway message to be? I want them to know that the rules around suspensions are not set in stone. They are policies, and policies can be changed. In addition, increasingly grandmothers are assuming the role of school-age children. These grandmothers have more of a distance in experience with school systems than biological parents. And so they're dealing with school issues. We're also losing a whole generation of African-American children who are not being educated, who are not having a positive experience with the school system due to suspensions. And so we really, especially social workers and school social workers, need to work with parents around their experience with suspensions and also providing them information in an easy way that they can digest and take in rules and policies about the school suspensions. For example, a one-sheet summary of policies and behaviors that result in suspensions and need to be given to every parent, suggesting that parents talk to their children before the school starts and continuously around what they're doing with their peers, to avoid conflicts and to handle conflicts and what they're doing with their teachers and being respectful to teachers. It's almost the same thing that some experts talk about driving while black, that no matter whether you think you're right, do what the police person says. And so in schools, no matter whether you think you're right or not, do what the teacher says, do what the principal says that message, and then social workers need to work with the school system to let them know the devastating effect of suspensions. You know, in the literature, it is said that one of the reasons suspensions occur is to alert parents of the misbehaviors of their child. Well, yes, it does that, but it also negatively impacts that child's education. So it's just really important that the school staff uh, and social workers work together to find alternative methods to misbehaviors with teachers and among peers. Well, this is some really important information for social workers working in the schools or working with parents. And I hope that the rest of your work goes well. I've asked all my questions. Is there anything that you want to talk about that we haven't touched upon? No, not at this point. As I say that, then I think of one thing. Actually, it's the importance of education for all kids, and especially African-American children. The other thing is the importance of parents feeling that they are welcome in school and are a part of the school system and their children's education. And I know that that is work because every parent isn't thinking like that, but that welcoming environment and reaching out to them, it's really important. I don't think that we can no longer separate the school and family. And 
trying to merge and form a positive collaborative relationship. And I'm not saying that this is easy, but I am saying that it is work to be done. Do you have any suggestions or how to make uh, the schools more welcoming to grandparent caregivers? I think that they need to go beyond the parent night that they have to letting parents know how the school operates. For example, you go in schools now, and and I've had this experience in Minnesota, and you are asked to show an ID, and you are given a card saying or a little tag saying it is okay for you to be in that building. And while that, I think, is around safety, and I'm not saying that schools need to do something different, I think parents need to know that that's going to happen. I think that parents need to know that they need to visit their kids' schools and that teachers are open to talk to parents at times other than just during the day when parents are typically working. I don't know at this point how the school system will facilitate that because during the day teachers are teaching. But if there were a way that teachers could be given 30 minutes, an hour, where they can just have phone conversations and parents can call them to discuss what's going on in the school. That would be a way to say, I understand that you're working 8 to 4.30. I'm also working 8 to 4.30. I'm supposed to be in the classroom, but the school has decided to give me this time off and there's someone else taking care of the kids, and I can just talk to a parent. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So putting structures in place to support the communication between parent and teacher. And then I think that the school system needs to be more involved, or people in the school system, or even administrators, need to be more involved in community. They need to speak at churches. And and I know that this is different, and I know there's a funding issues, and I know that they are there. They have a job to do, and they need to be there eight hours. But somehow things ought to be, there needs to be mechanisms and structures so that they can let parents in the community know, I am approachable, I am available. Yes, this is happening in the school. I can't discuss personal situations, but this is the policy that we're following. So the more information parents have, the more empowered they are, and the more they can help their children in uh, the school environment. And I think it's also important for the teachers and administrators to know that these parents do care. There can be a negative stereotype about African-American parents and, you know, value of education, which is totally false. So there needs to be some education on both sides, I think. Yeah, and, you know, one of the things I really liked about the findings from this study and the voices that I captured from parents, and they were saying, yes, I'm looking at my parenting. I'm looking at my child who may not have been truthful. It is like they are looking at the whole situation and they're not just blaming the school system. And so that shows a level of honesty and a level of willingness to work with school systems. And it makes it seem like the conditions are optimal for both sides to come together over a common concern. Both are wanting things to work, wanting children to be successful in school. So it seems like it's a ripe conditions for folks to not come together in opposition, but come together to work together to try to solve this problem. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it is a major problem, again, and I think that teachers and parents really need to work together just in a broader effort to educate students. I think you bring a hopeful message. I think so, too. And I know that, I want to be clear, I don't have all the answers. And I don't work in a school system. I don't have specific strategies to implement these ideas, but I would really like for parents and school systems to start thinking about them, talking about it, about them. And I think that the school system needs to take the lead. Well, thank you, Dr. Gibson, <laughs> for speaking with us about the work that you're doing with Kinship care providers who are African-American grandmothers. You are welcome. It has just been a pleasure to share what I'm doing in terms of my research and to discuss all of these issues with you. Well, you're welcome. It was, um, we're glad to have you. Thank you, Ajua. Oh, you're welcome. You've been listening to Dr. Priscilla Gibson discuss the emotional and relational costs of suspensions on African-American kinship caregivers. Thanks for listening and join us again next time for more lectures and conversations on social work practice and research. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. For more information about who we are, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. At UB, we are living proof that social work makes a difference in people's lives.